I am uh, the type of person that I like a good brain teaser. Anybody else with me on those? Like a good brain, and, and it really doesn't matter whether it's a, um, a, a riddle or a picture or or even a puzzle like a word search or Sudoku or something like that. Uh, I just like putting my brain through the paces to see if I can uh, uh, succeed or figure out whatever the, uh, the brain teaser might be. Um, and and it, I, I've actually, we're going to start this morning with some brain teasers that are pictures, and I think this is great for a morning like this weather-wise, because it can be hard on a rainy, dreary morning to get our brain going, right? So maybe this will be a, a good primer for us as we start this morning. So in just a moment, what we're going to do is uh, we'll put some, uh, uh, put a picture up on the screen, and, and your job is to figure out what is wrong with the picture. Okay, easy enough. And there is something wrong with each picture. None of them are trick questions, I promise. They, they're all, they all have something uh, that is the wrong with it. And so we'll put it on the screen. Once you figure it out, keep it to yourself. You know, let everybody else have a chance to noodle with it a little bit. I'll, I'll just give you like five or ten seconds, and then uh, I'll probably ask for somebody to shout out the answer. So, easy enough? I'm sorry, pop quiz, I didn't warn you ahead of time, but... All right, go ahead, let's get the, the first one up there. So, just five or ten seconds, what's, what's wrong with this picture? What is it? What's wrong with that one? Wind? Well, there's two moons, which is go to, but yeah, I guess there wouldn't be wind on the moon. Go to the next one, Jacob, because that's the, yeah, there's two moons, but I suppose there's another, I hadn't caught the flag blowing in the non-existent atmosphere, so, so both are correct. You get credit. All right, let's go to the next one. We've got a few of these. So again, same thing. What's wrong with that picture? Anybody got it? There's no river behind the bridge. Right, that's kind of, right, there should be. It's flowing under the bridge, not behind the bridge. All right, next one. What's wrong with that picture? Anybody got it? <laughs> the children are behaving? <laughs> Well played. <laughs> There's nothing in the pitcher, right? Pouring an empty pitcher, but something's coming out of it, so no milk there. All right, let's look at the next one. What's wrong with that picture? Yeah, wind blowing two different directions, right? Smoke going that way, trees, trees going that way. Jim jumped the gun on the wind one, see, that's... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to the next one. I think we got a couple more. What's wrong with uh, this picture here? Anybody got it? Levi thinks he's got it. No shadow. Well done. Man after my own heart right there. No shadow on this picture. There should be, though, the sun going across. Okay, next one. We got another one, Jacob? Maybe? There we go. Okay. What's wrong with this picture? 
Well, I heard a lot, but I didn't hear any of them. <laughs> Dri- yeah, it's obviously London, right? But they're driving, yeah, it should be driving on the other side of the road in, in London or the UK. All right, we got one more, right? I think, yep. What's wrong with that picture? What'd you say, Deb? Not the same what? Yeah, not the same continent, right? Yeah, one lives in the North Pole, one in the South Pole, so you're probably not going to find them on the same uh, piece of ice. That's the last one, right? Okay, well done. Well done. Now we are awake and ready. And there really was, there really was another reason I, I have those other than just to keep us awake, get us going. But what we're going to do this morning as is, is we continue through Luke's Gospel is uh, we're going to look at six smaller passages this morning, all back to back to back. And in each of these passages, there, there is something that Jesus does, which according to the religious leaders is wrong. So from their perspective, Jesus is doing something that's wrong. And, and, and what I'm going to do right off the bat is I'm just going to read, read each one of these. So I'll read the first one and then do the same kind of thing that we just did as I'm reading it from the perspective of the religious leaders, pick out what, what did Jesus do that, or say that was wrong from that perspective, okay? And, and I'll give you a fair warning that those pictures kind of started easy and got a little harder. We're starting off with the toughest one <laughs> in, in, the, in these six passages. In the other five, the religious leaders make it pretty clear what they're upset about. But in this first one, we have to do a little more uh, detective work. So, so we're going to start in Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 12. And again, I'll just read this first scene, and let's, let's figure out what Jesus does from their perspective that's wrong. So Luke five twelve it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray." So, as I said, maybe a little bit tougher, but what did Jesus do that the religious leaders would have had a problem with in that story? Touched him, right? Jesus touched the leper. Now, I was trying to think back over my growing up years, and I could not remember a single Sunday school lesson growing up, or or even a, a devotional book I've read as an adult, where the laws surrounding leprosy from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 were the main topic of discussion, right? I just don't remember that. Th- things like swelling and boils and discolored skin and raw flesh and yellow hair and black hair, and really, go look it up. That's all in there. Uh, I, th- that those things don't typically fill sermons and devotional books, but, but when you read through those chapters in Leviticus— uh, there are a few things that clearly stand out, and, and one is that Levitic, uh, Leviticus leprosy was serious, and it was contagious, and, and needed to be treated as such. 
And so it was something that, that it, it would slowly and painfully destroy a person. But then along with that, leprosy on the outside of a person provided a, a, a very strong analogy for what sin does on the inside of a person. And, and you see that throughout the text as well. And so because leprosy was serious and because it was contagious, those who contracted it were, were sent to live outside the city. Uh, they, they were to cry out unclean as they moved about so that somebody wouldn't accidentally get too close to them. So when Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper as he healed him, he was definitely breaking with protocol. And, and according to the religious leaders, Jesus himself would have been unclean because of that action because of what he did. So, so that's story number one. Let's go on to the second one. And again, same type of thing. What did Jesus do wrong from their perspective? Uh, chapter five, verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on, bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So, what did Jesus do that was wrong from their perspective? Forgave sins, or from their perspective, claimed to forgive sins, right? Blasphemy. Now, Jesus really could forgive sins. He really was the Son of God, is the Son of God, so we know he was not committing blasphemy. And even though Jesus performed the, the additional miracle that was more physically verifiable, he, he healed the man so he could walk, uh, they still didn't believe Jesus. They didn't believe that he could also forgive sins. Now, it's interesting that it seems the crowd there believed it when it happened, but, but the religious leaders did not. So as a result, they proclaimed that he was speaking blasphemy. On to the next one, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and, fo rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Pretty obvious there, right? What did Jesus do that was wrong? 
he ate, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, the, the, the concept of ritual purity was something highly important to the religious leaders. And it was so important to them that they sought to refrain from socially interacting with those that they considered not to be pure. And so as a result, they could not fathom why Jesus would do something as intimate and as personal as entering a tax collector's house and eat a meal with a group of tax collectors and sinners in their perspective. Wow, that was, that was out of bounds. That was wrong, according to them. Uh, the next story seems to take place in the same context, this meal at Levi's house. Verse 33 in chapter 5. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. So what did Jesus do wrong there? And his disciples in this one also. Wasn't fasting. Wasn't fasting. Now, now if you go back in the Old Testament, there, there is one time in the Old Testament where a recurring fast is commanded for God's people. And it's mentioned in, in Leviticus 16 in connection with the Day of Atonement. That was to be a day of fasting every year. Now, there were other times that fasts were, were called for by certain prophets um, or even by God himself in response to the sins of the nation. But, but as far as a regular recurring fast, it was only once per year. The Pharisees in the time of Jesus had increased that just a bit they prescribed two fasts per week. Now, that's different. <laughs> two fasts per week, according to them. Every Monday, every Thursday was to be days of fasting. And since Jesus and his disciples were not abiding by that tradition, they had a problem with that. Now, now Jesus goes on and he gives the parable there about uh, old and new cloth and old and new wine, and it's the longest teaching from Jesus that we'll see today, and we're going to end with that this morning. We're going to come back to there, so kind of keep that in mind, uh, but we've got two more stories where Jesus does something wrong. The next one, chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what they do wrong there? Yeah. 
Yeah, picking grain on the Sabbath, right? Working. I mean, now there wasn't anything wrong with the disciples picking grain from the field as they traveled. We might think, well, if that's not their field, what are they doing pulling grain? That's actually prescribed in Deuteronomy chapter 23 for those who are hungry. It's a way that they could be fed is doing that as they, as they were on their journey. But according to the religious leader's interpretation of the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath, reaping and threshing grain was work. And uh, in their eyes, it didn't matter if you reaped and threshed 20 bushels or 20 kernels. It, it really didn't matter. Work was work. And so because it was the Sabbath, they had issue with what Jesus and his disciples did there. And then finally, the last story we see in chapter 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the, men, the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So again, what did Jesus do wrong? Pretty clear in that one, right? Healed on the Sabbath. That was the issue. And again, like with the previous story, the problem wasn't with the action itself. It was, it was the timing of it. It was on the Sabbath. The tradition of the religious leaders would have allowed for medical intervention on the Sabbath in life-threatening situations. But man with a withered hand that had been that way for a long time, who was not in imminent danger, they, in their perspective, said, well, that can wait till, until nightfall, till the Sabbath is over. Jesus should have healed the man then, in, in their perspective. So when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, instead of waiting, they, they found themselves filled with fury, and they go out and they begin to plot against Jesus. So six stories, six times Jesus did something that he wasn't supposed to do, did something wrong according to the, the religious leaders, according to the Pharisees. And we know Jesus lived a sinless life. We know that. And so those were six times where Jesus did not sin against God. And what I want us to do at this point is, I want us to back up just a little bit, because I, I think it can be so easy to misunderstand the Pharisees here. And I think some of it is just how we grow up hearing stories from the Gospels, and the Pharisees are kind of always the bad guys, and to be sure, they are the antagonists in the stories. They, they, they are the ones clashing with Jesus, finding fault with his actions and his words, but I think understanding where they are coming from is helpful for us. So, so the early seeds for this group, known as the Pharisees, were actually planted probably 600 years before the ministry of Jesus. If you go back 600 years, you get to the time of the exile, where the, the Israelites in Jerusalem were exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, before that happened, before the city was invaded, the, the life of Israel revolved around the temple. 
it revolved around the religious sacrifices that took place at the temple. It revolved around the feasts, the yearly festivals that would take place at the temple. And, and that was by design. God instituted that so that the people would remain focused on him. But then the Babylonian army shows up, and they invade, and they destroy Jerusalem. They burn the temple, and the people are taken, they are removed from Jerusalem and taken to exile in Babylon. And at that point, things have to change, right? Because if life revolved around the temple and revolved around sacrifices in the temple, it can't be the case for any, anymore, right? If you're exiled in Babylon, you, you can't travel to Jerusalem for the three yearly festivals. You can't offer sacrifices at the temple that has been burned and is lying in ruins. And so in the eyes of the Israelites, the very core of what it meant to be a Jew was severely shaken and and you could argue at that moment, at least, was destroyed. Everything about their identity, not everything, but the main thing about their identity was pulled out from under them. And so it was kind of a crossroads. It, it left this gaping hole. The people were kind of struggling with their identity as Jews. And it was during that time in exile that, that the focus started to shift away from Jerusalem and away from the temple to something that they did still have. And that was the law. That was God's law given to them, the Old Testament law. Now, they couldn't fulfill it completely because, again, the temple was destroyed. They were exiled, but there were plenty of things in the law that they could uphold. The Sabbath was a big one. So as a result, the Old Testament law more and more came to function as the center of the identity of the Jews. Now, the time did come when the people were released from Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They reinstituted the sacrificial system. But even though they regained what they had once lost, uh, one commentator, I think, put it quite well. He said that the law did not cease to be the soul of the nation. So even though they got those things back, the focus primarily remained on the law. Their identity was still tied more closely to the law than to anything else. And as the centuries then went on, an oral tradition began to form that was added to the law. Because when you think about it, for as thorough as the law seems when we're reading through Leviticus and read about leprosy, it seems very thorough. <laughs> But for as thorough as it seems, it's actually not all that detailed, really. I mean, one can easily come up with numerous daily situations in which it's not entirely clear how the Old Testament law would apply. It doesn't spell it out exactly. And so the oral tradition was added in order to, to give those intricate details. Some have been known to say that the, the oral tradition created a fence around the law so that one didn't accidentally break the law. And so out of that context, the Pharisees emerged. They emerged as a group whose focus it was to teach and uphold and put into practice the law and all those traditions around it. That was the Pharisees. And they began, at least, as a group of Jews who very much loved God, very much wanted to honor God, very much wanted to honor their identity as Jews by keeping the law as perfectly as possible. 
And I think we understand the futility of that, don't we? But in a way, their intentions are commendable. I, I think they are. And along with that, I, I, I think you can make a firm argument that Jesus was more closely aligned with the Pharisees than any other Jewish group of his day. You take the Sadducees, for example, another Jewish group at the time of Jesus. The Sadducees were wealthy, aristocratic people who didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in angels or demons, didn't believe in life after death, and didn't believe in the coming Messiah. Now, that's not exactly a statement of faith that Jesus can sign on to, right? So he's quite different from the Sadducees. Uh, the Essenes are another group. They're not specifically mentioned in the Bible, but they are known to have existed at that time in Judea. And the Essenes were a group who completely withdrew from society and, and formed their own secluded monastic society in order to keep themselves pure from everything around them. And again, we see in Luke's gospel and, and in our passage today specifically, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, Essenes would have never thought about doing that type of a thing. So Jesus just didn't function like an Essene. So in many ways, he had more in common with the Pharisees than we might initially think. But all that being said, what started out as a group of people desiring to honor God through upholding the law as much as possible, it turned into a group that began to place the law and their own traditions and interpretations of the law above God himself. It's what it was by the time Jesus came. I mean, that's why when Jesus, the Son of God, said and did the things that he did, it, it clashed with those traditions and interpretations that the Pharisees had, and they opposed him and became enraged at him. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't get past suspected blasphemy to see his identity as the Son of God. They, they, they couldn't see his compassion when he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They, they couldn't understand why he wouldn't fast like they did. They didn't see the needs of him or his disciples when they picked grain on the Sabbath as they were walking on the road so they could eat. They couldn't rejoice with the man who, who had a crippled hand healed just because it was done on the Sabbath. I mean, and so as a result of all that, Jesus has some pretty strong words for the Pharisees. And, and I want us to go back here to the end of chapter 5. I said that this is the longest teaching section out of these stories. And I just want us to read again, uh, starting in verse 36, Luke 5, 36. Jesus also told them a parable. He said, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match the new. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, the skins, and it will, be and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So what we get here is the first parable in Luke's gospel. And, and there's going to be many more to come, and we'll get to them, but this is the first one. And, and the purpose of, of this parable and, and all parables is, is to, communicate, to communicate a spiritual truth using a common situation or, or analogy of some kind. That, that was the purpose of, of a parable. 
And that truth is communicated in such a way then that, that those who are open to the truth and those who are looking for the truth will find it in the parable. But those who are hardened and closed to the truth will not find it. And so we look at this parable and Jesus references two common situations. Certain items were incompatible with each other. So an old garment, you can't patch it with a new piece of cloth because when you wash it, that new piece of cloth shrinks, right? The old one is already shrunk. If you put a new one on it, it's going to shrink and it's going to tear away from that old garment. And then likewise with wine, you can't put new wine into an old wineskin because as new wine, ex- it expands as it ferments. And if you put it in old, fragile, already stretched wineskin, it's, it's going to burst it. It's what Jesus says there. So in other words, the, the things Jesus was teaching and the things he was modeling were simply not compatible with what the Pharisees were teaching and modeling. And, and that's what Jesus is confronting them with here. His way of thinking was difficult to accept for those who've been so used to thinking a completely different way for their entire life. And that's why you get to verse 39. Jesus declared that uh, those who drink the old wine have no desire for new. Now, when it comes to actual winemaking at that time, old was better than new. For sure, the new hadn't had time to ferment yet. Most anyone would have preferred old wine to new wine. But in this parable, wine isn't wine, is it? It's not. Wine was an understanding of God's character and and God's work in the world. What Jesus is saying is that those who were used to thinking in a certain way regarding God's character and, and, and what God desired struggled mightily with this new understanding and, in fact, preferred the old to the new. I mean, he's calling out the religious leaders here. I think about it, uh, my mind immediately went to math, which is maybe kind of odd, but let me, let me explain here. When you think about old math and new math today, any parent who grew up on old math but has a child in school learning new math knows what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I mean, after being trained to think one way for so long, it, it can be kind of difficult to, to change that. And so, so uh, I thought we'd have a couple math problems that we see here this morning. So if you see up there, here's the old math that the religious leaders would have been, they would have been adhering to, their way of thinking. So you have a privileged person, and you add to that following God's commands, and you get God's people. That, that, that was their, their way of thinking. They operated under the assumption that a, that a privileged person, a.k.a. a Jew, When a Jew would follow God's commands, then that would make them God's people. And you can hear that assumption in their words to Jesus when he's at Levi's house, eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, who were tax collectors? Tax collectors were were generally Jews, but they were Jews who were collaborating with the Romans to collect taxes. And and so in, in essence, They were viewed as Jews who threw away their national identity in order to work with Rome. So those tax collectors were not considered the privileged person. 
And then who were sinners? Well, of course, they were the ones that, that didn't follow God's commands as the Pharisees thought they should. That's why they had such a problem with eating with tax collectors and sinners, because that's not in the equation. According to the old math, that doesn't work. If you're not a Jew and if you're not, if you're not following God's commands, then according to the old math, you cannot be part of God's people. But then you contrast that with the new math that Jesus was bringing to them. And he would say, no, any person who accepts Jesus as their Savior and Lord is God's people. And that's a very, very different way of thinking. I mean, we notice how the inclusion in the people of God was no longer limited to Jews who kept the law. And that's why Jesus could go up to Levi, the tax collector, and say, follow me, when the Pharisees under this equation wouldn't have even looked in his direction. And so when we think about this old math and this new math, you know, when I consider the new math proclaimed by Jesus, I see in it an incredible blessing and a challenge as well, both at the same time. The blessing is that I can actually be included in the new math. I mean, under, the, under this, I, I don't have a chance. I don't. I'm not a Jew, and, and I don't follow God's commands consistently enough. So under this, I, I, there's really no hope for me. But under this, there is hope. I can be included. I am a person. And by God's grace, I'm able to humble myself before Jesus and accept him as my Savior and Lord. I mean, what a blessing that is, that this is what Jesus brought. Wow, that is, that is so much. I mean, aren't you glad that it's this and not this? Man, that is a blessing. That's why the gospel message is such good news. This isn't so much, but this is incredibly good news. But I said along with the blessing is, is a challenge in that as well, because the, the challenge for me is to not go from this back to that, to try to change it. The, the challenge for me is to not place restrictions on any person. And the challenge for me is to not place additional qualifications on accepting Jesus as Savior and Lord. I mean, that, that's that's the challenge in there. If, if the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is sufficient to transform me into one of God's people, then I need to allow it to be sufficient to transform others into God's people as well and not try to add other things to it. Especially those that I might be tempted to write off or consider as too far gone. I, I mean... Perhaps I'm, 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 sounding, I'm starting to sound like a broken record as we go through Luke's gospel, but the grand theme of the gospel is Jesus came for all. I mean, if you had to sum up, sum up Luke, that's what it is. Jesus came for all. And again, I'm so blessed by that truth, but challenged as well to not try to change that truth slightly. So, uh, you know, as we close our time together this morning, uh, I think we can pray along those two lines. We can, we can pray in thankfulness that we are blessed by this new math, this new wine, if you will, that Jesus brought. We can also pray 
that God would keep us here and call other people to this and not seek to fall back into an old way of, of thinking. So let's end by doing that this morning. Would you, would you stand with me? And again, we'll both give God thanks and pray for his strength to walk in this truth as well. Heavenly Father, we, we truly are blessed. There's just no question. When we look at these two formulas, uh, we're so blessed to be living under the new covenant. I thank you for that. I thank you that that, that, that that is what it is because you came to this earth, you lived your life, and you offered yourself on the cross for us. Because of that, any of us can accept you, accept you as our Savior, accept you as our Lord, and be your people. We're so thankful for that. We're humbled by that. Um, it's the most incredible news that we'll ever hear in our lives. And help us to share that to others as well. Uh, strengthen us. Give us discernment to, to proclaim that good news and not seek to make it something else. God, give us, give us your, your eyes and your ears and your, your heart for those in our midst that uh, have not yet discovered the incredible blessing of that truth. Give us opportunity to proclaim it. Uh, help us to not fall into the, the, the pharisaical type of thinking where there's all these restrictions and regulations that, that are added to it. God, uh, would you keep us in, in your truth? and in your love. We can walk in it and proclaim it to others. We give you praise today. We worship you. We want to honor you. It's because of who you are and how you're working. And so God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.